Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Big Interview, season 2017-2018. Before this interview starts, a brief announcement. This season, we're inviting our listeners to join the Big Interview Members Club. In Spanish football, they call them socios, members. They are the lifeblood of the club, de facto owners, and they get special treatment in return. That's how this will work too. Here is everything you can get if you choose to become a socio of The Big Interview for £2.99 a month. You get one extra exclusive Big Interview episode. No one except the socios will hear this. Join now and you'll get Raphael van der Vaart. David Silva. That's a joy to watch. Yeah, that's a joy. That, that goes away, the real number 10s. Mm. Because you have to be like Pogba, big player, strong, box to box. And I think when you have still players like, like me, like uh, Silva, Schneider, Iniesta, mm. I think that's why you're going to buy a ticket. Yeah, for sure. And me too. You get a brand new weekly show. We call it The Big Inside View, where I'll give you my take on what I've learned, seen or heard over the past seven days in football, socios will also receive bonus shows during the season, including question and answer specials around big events like Classicals. All that for £2.99 a month. Less than a pint, less than the price of your favourite football magazine, less than a match day programme. Go to patreon.com slash Graham Hunter to join us, to sign up now to make this happen. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Graham Hunter. Join us. Make the big interviews bigger. While we were enjoying recording season two of the big interview, one special theme tended to stand out above all the others, street football. It seemed as though every one of our guests who came on the show was able to share a particular memory, an important memory, of being a kid kicking a ball about on the road near their house, in a nearby field, or simply against the door of a shed or a wall. And each of them acknowledged that those games, that practice, the rough, difficult nature of street football, put them on the path to becoming a professional footballer. They valued the memories as much as we enjoyed listening to them. Clearly, there was no choice but to bring those childhood tales together and create a highlight show dedicated to street football, something which, sadly, we see all too little of nowadays and the ethos of which is definitely lacking in modern professional football. 
It's perhaps fitting that we begin with a history lesson. As Alex McLeish and Walter Smith recall the carefree days coming home from school and rushing right back out the door to join in the game they knew was already underway, always underway, in their local field nearby. Martin Noble also remembers joining every youngster on his street to play a game on a school field behind their houses, a game which didn't end even when his mum shouted on him to come home. Thomas Hitzelsberger explains how he was able to transform the family farm in the south of Germany into a football pitch to rival Wembley and Matthew Letissier, the great Letiss, describes the game he made up for himself in his back garden, the one which honed his brilliant technique. Did you play street football? Street you always football. get asked, did you play on blaze? Played street football, but we played up the field. We had a field, lucky enough to have a field full of cow shit, you know, but <laughs> when, it, when I come home, we played playtime in the morning, lunchtime, playtime. I came home, I'd throw my school bag in and I'd say to my mum, Mum, get up the field to play football. Get out of bloody school. Close <laughs> off first. But no, I would just charge right up there and uh, we'd, we'd play football in the fields. You don't, you know, we don't have that kind of environment nowadays for younger kids. Why? But also, well, because, um, you know, there's, there's no street football. Obviously, the, the, the you know, New technology took over. Everybody's got a car now. You can't go and kick a ball against the stairs in the street anymore or play any street football. So they've tried to adapt. You know, the, the Dutch come out with the small-sided games um, and, th- and that to try and um, encourage technique. So, you know, we, we tend to copy other countries, but we've still got qualities of our own if we could just marry the two together, which is what I felt Alec Ferguson did with us in, in the, that really successful Aberdeen area. We've a lot of younger listeners who are exactly in the situation that you talked about who've never really seen, they've heard about street football. Like, yeah. that you could literally go out. Describe that specifically, growing up, wherever you grew up. I grew up in Carmel, just um, um, about maybe two, three miles from Celtic Park. Um, I was there, just on the edge of city boundaries. Uh, so, um, like, I, I mean, like every other kid at, at the time, it was a small village. There's only maybe 1,500, 2,000 people in it. They are surrounded by steelworks and um, etc. But enjoyable childhood, and most of that was spent playing football. And um, but literally, I mean, because that's what they did. It, these aren't golden. I know because you know we're slightly different ages, but I grew up this, with the same focus. But always out with the ball, yeah, run the grass into mud. But you're literally talking about there's always a game. Street, you could always park, find a whatever. game. You could always find a game in the village. It didn't matter, you know, if you went out, especially if you won the ball. If you had a ball, you know, you were always popular. But, um, you know, you would go down and there was a park just 50 yards from where I lived and there was always a, a game there. And uh, it might have been um, sometimes two aside and sometimes it might have been ten aside. It didn't matter, you know, and they didn't bother too much about, you know, odd numbers or anything like that. I mean, you just went down and you picked a team. And one of the more remarkable things in the days of bibs and things like that that we have and all the equipment that we have, that we used to... Um, I just pick the teams, and um, 
uh, it was one of those things you soon got to know who was on your team and who wasn't and there was no indication jersey-wise or otherwise um, um, that, that was the case but that, that's what we did in, that, that, in Glasgow that would have been a circumstance in any street everybody played and you played between the lampposts and the fences were the goals and um, and he played and that was where um, you learned your football there and as I say in the parks Playing in the street has always fascinated me because you have to use your head a little bit The strange thing I was driving into Glasgow the other day and I saw a big canvas advert do you want to play street football and um, you know I, I, I don't know um, you know what, how they go about it or what they're going to do but do you want to play street football and it took me back and I, really? I, I, and I thought well, that's great. So I just wonder how they're going to do it. And I don't know the setup. I just thought, but that's where the majority of kids learn to play. We had lived in a house in a place called Jenkins Road. And behind us was a, uh, like a, I think it was a university or something, like a, a field. Mm. So what my dad done was he got a geese around from work and our back garden, we had a fence and then behind our fence was like the, you know, the strong iron railings with the spikes on top so yeah, you couldn't get yeah, over there. Yeah. So obviously, at first, I used to get on top of our shed, do you know what I mean, or put a lump of wood and jump over and uh, constantly hurt ourselves. So he had the fella come round and the fella cut a, a little gate at the bottom of our fence, put a couple of hinges on it, and then undone the screws in the metal fence so we could get through our gate, for slide <laughs> the gates for it and get through and play footy. Private gate in yeah. the fence. So I used to be out there till like my mum used to shout, Mark! And it was dark at the time, do you know what I mean? So you didn't answer back, so you didn't want to go in. And we used to play out there for hours, hours and hours and hours. And um, when they used to cut the grass, we used to make little five side pitches out of the dead grass, you know, with the goals. And Brilliant. Pucker it was. There was probably six, seven boys my age in that in that road and you can imagine it was carnage. Do you know what I mean? There was balls going through windows and then take us to rural Bavaria. Literally walk us through it. Where did you do this practice before somebody helped teach you, before somebody spotted you and brought you into a system? Well, I was quite lucky the way I was brought up. You know, I've got five older brothers that was played with me when I wanted to play. Grew up on a farm. There's a lot of land, you know, just outside of the house. It's almost like a proper football field. I made sure when I was eight years old, because I, I signed for Bayern when I was seven. And because I had so much space at home, we asked them after a couple of years whether they have some goals for us that we can put on, on, the, on the grass on the field. And that's what they did. We picked those goals up, and I think starting from nine or ten years, we had those two goals outside of our house. So I could always play football. Somebody wasn't a goal, and I took shots, and we played football. I just love football, you know, just like you talk about it now. It, it's so much fun. And back in the days, I just couldn't play enough football. I had training mm. two, three times a week. When I went back home, I played football. And to have that luxury of having a proper football field at home with two goals, what more can you ask for? When you do that on a farm and you're gifted goals, what was it? You said it was like a pitch. What was the surface like? Pretty good. I, I made, well, it wasn't bumpy? No, it wasn't like a, a Wembley pitch, you know, but it was good enough. You know, it was better than most other football pitches that you get. And uh, I just made sure, I told my dad, you've got to make sure it's, it's well cut, you know, you cut the lawn every other week so I can play decent football. Because he would sit there sometimes watching me play and of course he realised I, I was a big talent and he wanted to support me all the way through and he did and part of it was cutting the lawn. I'm in a habit of just asking what I'm curious about. She said you were given a gift. So before we go into sort of theology or religion or anything <laughs> like that, 
If I asked you how far would you've got in your life with just your natural talent, would I be right in speculating that not as far? Because I have the inkling that all great players of your talent, almost all of them, have, have practised to a huge oh, yeah. degree at some stage in their life. And I don't really mean training sessions. No, I, I, you're absolutely right. I practise as a kid. I can just remember having a football at my feet a lot of the time mm. a lot of the time I mean when the summer months came round I was playing cricket and it was a cricket mm. ball for, for the whole of the summer um, but during the football season I, I played a lot with my friends around the estate that I lived on if there was nobody around I'd create little games for myself you, you had to have an imagination about like where the goal might be or... yeah yeah so I had a, I had a at my house uh, just outside my front door I had an area where I could throw a tennis ball against the wall and I would come back off the wall and I'd chest and volley against the back of the shed of next door's house. So it was, we, we lived in a terrace house and the back of their shed backed onto our front patio. Mm-hmm. So I just, I can remember it in detail now, there was like a couple of lines, it was split into thirds, the back of the shed had the line down and the line down, so there was three parts and I'd throw the ball up and I'd make sure that it never went in the middle one because that's where the goalkeeper was stood. Mm-hmm. And it was always... I'd go for the bottom corners uh, each time. And you'd be challenging yourself to make sure you did it. Yeah, absolutely. So I would stand there. I, I, I can remember playing games like, right, I'm going to throw 10 balls against that wall and I'm going to chest and volley it. And if I get 9 out of 10 in those two side thirds, I'm going to be a professional footballer. Mm. And that's the game that I play with myself. Mm. And just, just little things like that, really. Just invent games. Those were idyllic childhood memories but street football taught harsh lessons too. For example, John Collins will explain how he was forced to adapt his game while playing against his older brother's bigger, brawnier friends, and Johnny Evans relives his encounters with the neighbourhood bully. The advice Johnny was given from his dad that day about how to get his own back has turned out to be prophetic. Benny McCarthy will also take us to the deadly streets of Cape Town, where playing football meant stopping occasionally to avoid a gangland shooting. Unbelievable but true. I mean, you're somebody who, I mean, grit and determination and self-betterment are just pretty much embedded in your character. Well, training's always something. I've always loved training. I've always loved pushing myself. Um, from a very young age, it was encouraged from my, my, my father. I had a big brother, huge role played in my development as a football player why? because I played with my big brother's friends all through my childhood from 7 years of age up until about 14 I was playing with big guys I was never the star in the training pitch or in the streets because they were all bigger and stronger than me so I've always been pushed pushed, pushed and and when I went to Monaco again I was pushed to another level um, on the training pitch so with the big brother, that's pushed to you, you want to you're not left behind. You want to be knocked over. You want to show on one of the big boys. Well, one thing competitive. You, well, it's competitive, but when you play with bigger kids, um, you can't run past them because you're no faster than them. You can't bump your way around them because you're no stronger than them. Mm. So you have to think and use your skill and develop your football brain. So I have to one two it past them. I have to play it right and run past them on the left, or I have to go forward and then jink backwards change direction use mass strength which is I'm smaller I'm more nimble so people talk about street football small sided games that's where you develop your brain and your touch because you're getting thousands of touches and you're making thousands of decisions under pressure often against bigger players and it's something that's gone now street football won't come back in, the, in as it was in the past no. but 
I've said it before, many people have heard me, we've got to try and replicate that in the academies. <coughs> mm. And that doesn't mean, and that means moving players up levels, age levels. So Testing them, taking them test, out of their comfort zone. Taking them out of their comfort zone, so they're not a, a, a big number nine under 13, scoring mm. 50 <laughs> goals because he's bigger, stronger. Because yeah. he's not developing. Yeah. And I often say, well, as soon as you go three goals up, and as a youth player, you're not developing as a player because mm. it's too easy. The opposition is there's too much space and it's too easy. So you, you've got to try and develop your academy teams that they're all playing up. So if you, for example, you're Celtic or Rangers, you don't want to be winning 5 0, 3 0, 6 0. So can you have the under 12s or what the good ones playing up an age? And for me, that's what street football did to mm. the good football players. They were stretched, mm. playing is bigger, stronger, thinking, you, making their brain work on that training pitch and getting thousands of touches of the ball. Um, maybe I'm old-fashioned, but I think when I break it down, that's what we've got to try and get back to within our academies. I think the Coy role was probably the youngest two lads in the street, so we were always around older lads who were playing and... Actually, it made us maybe grow up in a, in a way. Yeah. We had to sort of play against these lads and, you know, get stuck in. That's what you had to do. Did you think about that? I mean, there, there were days at six, seven, eight, nine where you knocked over, you lose a bit of skin. Maybe one of them says, don't do that to me again. I can remember I can remember one day, actually, I'm out playing and uh, this guy, he's a bit of the estate bully. He started... Um, I don't know, maybe maybe I was showing off or maybe he thought, oh, I'll teach him a lesson. But he just started, you know, every time I got the ball, kicking my legs and booting my shins. And I came into the house after and I had all these cuts on my legs and mm. my mum was obviously getting all upset. And my dad said, well, whenever you... Well, first of all, he told me the next time, pick up a stick and hit him with it. <laughs> Quite right, too. Um, and then he said, well... You know, one day whenever you're playing for Man United and he's looking tickets, you don't get him tickets. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that was, I mean, obviously he's probably thinking, no, I'm never going to play for Man United. That was just a, a pipe dream, really. But, you know, those little things like that stuck with me and I always wanted to have that um, ambition maybe to prove people wrong as well. Crime and, 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 and the gang violence was so bad the police couldn't intervene anymore and the government tried but couldn't because, yeah, the gangs was just out of hand. It's like people live two streets from each other and then they rival gangs and they would shoot, like, literally from that window, that, that window building there, they would just shoot at each other and people walking past or people, like, maybe in their houses, they don't care if you get hit. It's a drive-by. That was that was everyday life for for for, for me, wow. you know. And then the community. I think the community came together and and to try and fight this thing as well. That's say now nah, like too many innocent kids and people are dying because of these stupid guys. Then what people does, around you, people that you grew up with, people yeah, in your school. Um, one of my be- one of my best friends, guy that every single day we were together, we were playing football outside my house and then obviously because half time and then you have a break so whoever whichever house is the closest you go and get the, the, the water and the glasses so the wall of my house was the goalpost so I, I'm the closest so I went I went in to go and grab bring the water and, and you know the half time snacks or whatever we have crisps or that and we were all just sitting and talking about the first half so I went in 
and about literally I was in the house for like 30 seconds, not even 30 seconds, 10 seconds from me leaving the group. And then we were like 11 years old. Go in the house and then just had pa, 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 gunshots. And coming towards here and I just saw, and I was like, holy man, so I ran outside. But this, this is the level that we at. When you hear gunshots, you go and run for cover and that. We run to see where it comes from, where it's coming from. So that, but that was just how it was. So I went, went outside and obviously the guys, they were all, normally we lie on the floor flat because it's very difficult that it could catch you where they shoot down because it's normally up. So everybody was just lying flat and, and that. And then eventually we looked, we looked through, the, through the flats and we saw the, um, the rival gang guys ran back to, to where they're from, like across the football pitch. And then so then, yeah, we all like, hey, 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 everybody okay? And Reginald, he just kept laying there. And as we were like, hey, Mo, Reg, lifted him up. Brains spattered everywhere. Oh, that was the closest I came, 11 years. We were 11 years old, and wow. So an 11-year-old Reginald is just an innocent victim of... Of a gang shooting, shooting in the general direction of another gang, and they kill Reginald. Yeah, kids playing, and uh, they said they think we're rival gangs, so. And yeah, he got his head taken off. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Street football is sadly no longer a glorious part of growing up. And in the final part of this highlight show, Walter Smith laments its loss. 
He also acknowledges the demands which have now been put on parents who have to give up their time and hard-earned money simply so that their kids can play. While Neil Lennon argues that the development of youth players is being stifled by too much coaching. But it was during that period of time that um, Andy's job as director of coaching was one that um, obviously stretched a bit deeper than just taking football teams. They had the whole coaching structure to put in place. And um, one day when I away, he said, I have to make a report um, about the future of, of Scottish football um, for the SFA. And um, he said to me, I'll, I'll give you it and I'll let you read it. And in his report, he, he stated that he was concerned that the number of players going to be available for, the, for to the professional game was going to dwindle. Um, because of the change of environment that was happening within our country. The no more street football, you know, no more, well, park football as such. And at the time, I, um, I disagreed with them because I, at Dundee United, we had a decent youth policy. Um, so did the other, other clubs. I was seeing players coming through at, at that early 80s stage, the young players. You mentioned Paul McStay, but, you know, Charlie Nicholas's and, and others that that were at Celtic and other um, young boys, but they were all coming through. And um, so I, I said to Mandy, they're, they're coming through, they'll always come through. And they but um, when you look back now, he was correct. There, there are fewer and fewer talented Scottish players coming to the professional game now. We're getting players that are coming in, but individually talented players are, are few and far between over the last um, 10 odd years. So his assessment of that, at that stage, um, it was quite visionary. W- yeah, was was something that um, when I look back on and uh, and I see it, I kind of obviously enjoyed the, the winning the European Youth Tournament. I enjoyed um, going to Mexico, but the thing that sticks in my head more than anything else was that report Randy made that assessment um, in 1982, 83, and um, you wouldn't have thought it possible. Yes. I have to agree. Listening to that now, if you'd looked around and seen some of the things that we're about to talk about, beating regularly with all 11 Scots in, whether it's Celtic, Rangers weren't right then maybe so dominant in Europe, but um, Aberdeen, Dundee United, Celtic beating Ajax a couple of years later, knocking out Cruyff and Ajax. You'd have looked around and thought, it's all happening, it's all coming through. That thing about we always believed it would be perpetual, maybe over the years, and maybe it's natural, maybe it, certain people stop trying, stop being methodical or forward-thinking about it because there'd always been a rich seam of players who liked the ball, um, knew what to do with it. Oh, it's, a, it's a lack of forward-thinking, you know, more than, than anything else. Um, uh, you know, if... Nobody had ever mentioned that to me. I wouldn't have blamed them mm-hmm. for not thinking about it. Mm-hmm. But this was a report that was that was sitting there, and it, um, as I say, it's the strangest um, aspect of that period. Mm-hmm. That well, the, we were enjoying the success of a, a youth team for the first or well, the only time Don't that Scotland have won that championship. Um, we were enjoying that success, but at the same time, Andy was saying, you know, this is something that in the future. Is not going to happen. And it fell on deaf ears generally. Yes. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, it did. They obviously had to put the report in front of people at the SFA. 
but it fell in deaf ears. In fairness to the people in Scotland, it hasn't only happened in Scotland. Yeah. It has happened in a great number of countries. And although we only concern ourselves with our own country, um, it, it's happening in more countries than, than we imagine. I think that the standard of individual players that are coming to the professional game um, is, is now as low as it's been, not just in Scotland, but as, as I say, in a, in a lot of countries across Europe. Countries like Iceland have tried to adjust it recently. <laughs> That's the model, I bet. They, like. they, now, their, their reasons are maybe different from Scotland's. Ours, I think, can be placed in, in terms of negligence, whereas for them, you know, it was always difficult to have a facility for kids to train and, 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 and do that, but they've adjusted to it. Now, we still, I don't think, have adjusted to that aspect of it. This isn't where I was going to go because I, you have all struck me, and I'd like to say we share a fascination for aspects of continental football, and that's the main reason for this big interview today. But by the time you take over successfully at Scotland, um, before moving back to Rangers, had things noticeably changed in the SFA in terms of vision, forward planning, openness to the need to radically change our ability to develop and seed good football players and good football coaches at youth level? Yeah, it has changed. Uh, it's in the process of changing um, at the present moment. I think Scotland became aware of that aspect of it. And I think now they're, they're, they're trying very hard to, to do something about it. A little bit disappointing in terms of the timing. We've left it late. Yeah. But it's better now that we, that we do it um, rather than not approach it. And we're doing so now. I'm, I'm starting to live it through my, my grandkids. You know, you, you have grandkids who come and play and you actually see what they have to do um, to enjoy their football uh, in comparison to what I had to do to enjoy mine. Mine was just to walk out the door and go to a local park. There was always a game. Uh, you could walk out the door and there'd be a game in the street. It was always there. Um, now um, the kids have to be taken to wherever they've got to be. The logistic aspects of it um, put a pressure on parents, there's absolutely no doubt about it. But uh, now the facilities are there and I think we're just beginning to awaken to the fact that you know we need to use the facility that we have, we need to try and find a way of doing it. Schools are starting to go back now to have football teams and different things like that and I think we're starting to see uh, a circumstance where we are getting kids to play the requisite number of hours that's required to make them good at whatever they're going to do. And an understanding about what we do with those hours, that they need to be on the ball, that they need to be enjoying, yes. developing their touch. No, there's no secret to to play football. You know, that, that, that it's just to play football. It develops through a circumstance that um, I don't think at any age, I mean, if I look at my grandkids, are, are my two oldest, the boys are nine. So, you know, they've been playing for, for three, four years now and they, they play away and they love playing. So that for them, I think, is the thing about where do they go to play nowadays? You know, that, that's it. They can't just go out into the street. They can't do that. Their parents have to take them there. Their grandparents have to take them I, I'm it's doing an active that. choice yes. rather than just wondering just something that your parents were involved in the parents have to be involved in this and this is where um, we still have a, a problem in a lot of, of um, the, the more deprived areas in, in, in our country we still have to have a circumstance here where I think we adjust 
to them more than, than, than anything else. We were all brought up in working class societies in, in, in Glasgow and football was, was the main thing that we did do. Now there are other aspects that, that develop that takes kids' attention. But nobody's going to tell me that kids nowadays don't love playing football. Nobody's going to tell me that we have a circumstance that um, once they start to play, uh, they've not got their heroes. They've got them all now. Whereas ours used to be Scottish. Nowadays, we're getting it that the television's made it that they have heroes in Barcelona and, and Madrid and Munich and, you know, all over um, Europe. They'll pick players that they love. You go to the grandkids' training sessions and I've all got foreign football club jerseys on. I mean, so um, the, the circumstance Thank changes. Thank you. But, I like that. Yeah. As long as it's... No, but the circumstance changes. Yeah. But, um, you know, the fact is that all we need is to get them to play as much football as they possibly can. And we're, they're making inroads in that. The SFA have started to, to do that now. We're talking about modern-day football. We're talking about Scottish football. And everyone says, Graham, we played football morning, noon and night. On the streets, on the gravel, on the shale, on the, on the greens and estates. It's impossible to do that now. And there are all, all these facilities for kids now. But they're getting coached to death. And um, I, I worry that their natural instincts is being coached out of them at an early age. And then they become sanitised. The academies are full. I think they're over saturated with ordinary players. You know, we've tried different blueprints. We've looked at the Spanish model. We've looked at this model. And really, we should go back to basics. And I came in one day to Celtic on a day off. And uh, I said, uh, I wanted to watch you on the 21s training. Just, and they were off. So I said to my staff, you know, where's the under-21s? And Jim McGuinness was, you know, working with the younger players and he, he came to me and he said, look, my, my concern is, having viewed it for a while, we're creating mini-me's. <laughs> you know, they're creating, the copy of what the first team are doing. Now, that's all well and good, but the first team at Celtic would play 50, 60 games a season. These kids would play half of that. So they should be working twice as hard. They should be working twice as hard, and they're not. And I think that was a big wake-up call for for a lot of people. Um, certainly with the under twenty ones, anyway. Um, and I, I, you would have a kid say at Celtic, or a kid at Park Thistle, or a kid at Ross County, in the academy system, and they train maybe two, three times a week. They don't play for the boys' club, don't play for the school, so they're training with a professional club. And they're doing maybe two sessions a week, Graham. And how much of the ball they get in the sessions, I don't know. Because some days I used to see pitches like Presswick Runway with cones everywhere and everything sort of done to the specifics of the coach. And then, say, Selig were playing Ross County, they'd travel up to Ross County and the kid would be in the squad and he would get maybe 15 minutes. Now, I'm not just talking about Selig, I'm talking about the game in general. So that kid, in that week... I had 15 minutes of football and two training sessions. Whereas we, when we were growing up, we were playing school football, boys club football, Gaelic football. And what's more, whenever I, when I took Tommy Burns over to Juventus, they were doing double sessions three times a week. And I speak to leading professionals around Europe who sometimes do treble sessions. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, each of them is calibrated differently. They're not all physical work. Sometimes it's tactics. But it's also creating... 
I, I remember the, the, this isn't my podcast and I don't mean to, to no, go ahead. talk across an expert, but I remember going to Euro 2008 as the Spain correspondent and um, they train twice a day every day in a tournament at the end of a long season. And what we are taught by particularly the England managers when they, they assess their players' physical state at the end of a season and they say they're in bits because the premiership is blah, 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 blah. So I said to the Spanish technicians who were under Luis Aragonés at the time, what, what? Won't they be tired? Why are they training twice a day? He said, one, you can't keep these players away from the ball. They're never happier than when they're chatting or playing or training, and therefore we do it to keep them happy. Secondly, it creates a spirit. It's fantastic for them to be constantly working, not stuck in a room or in little factions. It's a tournament which is slightly different from youth players. But also he said um, it fights boredom. Everything is positive about this. So for, to listen to young players who are missing the chance to bond, to learn, not just to get fitter, but to teach themselves or be taught their trade better than they are already. What do we do? Because you, you talked, first of all, about playing on rubbish pitches. or Everybody here must have played on Blaze, where you, you, know, you kill yourself if you slide in, so you learn not to be knocked over, to get away, or how to jockey, not to slide in. Streets, you, the cobbles, the cars, whatever... Certainly we're more socially affluent now as a society, you know, than we, obviously than we were 15, 20 years ago. Softer. Yeah, no question, Graham. I, no question. You know, I see it in the modern day player, I see it in the, in the younger players as well, that they're sort of sanitised. We've sanitised the game. Um, and what we've done at the Hibs is we've got a little barn and it's a little indoor arena and it's sort of like the length of this room and we get the boys in there and we don't coach them we just go where you go play play and play and play and play and they get stuck into each other bash each other off the walls and all of a sudden you're starting to see their Mm. natural juices their instincts kicking in and I think that's right for young players they have to learn problem solving they have to learn their technique. You know, I remember speaking to Gordon Strachan about it, and he, he said he had one of his, his grandkids at a... It might have been his grand... Yeah, or one of his younger boys at a, an academy session. And I, he said, I think he touched the ball maybe 30 times. Whereas he took him into a gym and made him kick the ball against the wall for half an hour, and he touched the ball maybe... Five, six hundred, seven hundred times. Gordon's an extreme, extreme case that I love because I, I, in this series he told us how he made his wife, Leslie, I'm sure, lock him in the garage, take the car out, we'll take the car out first, lock him in his own garage with a ball to see how many touches off the wall he could get in half an yeah. hour. She'd knock on the door and say, actually half hour, come in and watch Cornish's a thousand touches, he said. Yeah. Just the Scotland manager up against him and the wall and the ball. I know it sounds really antiquated and as if we're going back the way, but... We're not producing the players that we were producing. It's evident. And we're not, physically, we're not producing them either. And certainly tactically or game intelligence-wise, we're not producing them either. Now, why is that? Are they overcoached? That's my own opinion, is that they're over, overcoached. I even took my son to a boys' club, and he said, Dad, I don't want you to watch because you'll embarrass me in front of all, the, all these kids who are Celtic fans. I said, right, OK. So I went away behind the trees just to watch and he didn't see a ball for 20 minutes. 20 minutes. He was nine years of age. For 20 minutes, he didn't see a ball. He was doing a warm-up for 20 minutes. And that is what's wrong. So in that hour, 20 minutes is wiped off straight away because he's stretching, 
or he's warming up. These people who are coaches are volunteers and they mean well. You know, they mean well. But for me, from a professional point of view, that's not the way I was taught the game. I, I obviously was self-taught. And then I got coached when I was maybe 14, 15. And then when you're in the professional game, you get coached even more. But you're already at the club when you're 14, 15 because you're good. And what's made me good is I've had practice and practice and practice and I've learned how to master the ball or control the ball or pass the ball or run with the ball myself. Now that's my own opinion. People shoot me down in flames for saying that. But I, I just think we sanitise the game now for kids. It's just too, too much like the modern day footballer. What they don't see is the end, what they see is the end product. What they don't see is the sacrifices the Ronaldo makes, the Messi's make, totally right. the Beckham's make. They see the end product in all the glory at Old Trafford, you know, Sky Sports Sunday, and they go, I want that. Well, if you want it, you've got to work really, really hard, son, and you've got to make some real sacrifices. And then when they realise how difficult it is, you know, most of them fall away. How much do you get in life that's completely free, reliable, regular, good for your sex life, and free? Yeah, the big interview. All of these, in their full form, and many more, are available if you search for the big interview on ACAST, that's A-C-A-S-T, iTunes, or usually wherever you get your podcasts. The big interview was the idea of Backpage, and it's produced by them. Thanks to Beer Jacket for the music. Keep up to date with everything that we're doing at grahamhunter.tv and GH Podcast on Twitter. Keep in touch. Let us know what you think. More soon, baby. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.